0: If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode.
1: Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. This week, I'm talking to the legendary cartoonist Art Spiegelman, the author of Mouse and In the Shadow of No Towers, and creator and editor of many other comic books and cartoon strips, some of which have appeared in the LRP. His most recent work is a collaboration with the writer Robert Coover, a book called Street Cop, published by Isolari. Hello, Art, and thank you very much for joining me.
0: Oh, thanks for having me, Tom.
1: Street Cop describes... An eventful day, I think it's one day, in the life of a, an anonymous street cop in an anonymous, futuristic, phantasmagorical city. There are robot cops, there's a spaceport, there are devices that enable people to float in the air and have sex in midair, zombie pet shops, and the city itself is radically unstable with space and time all mixed up somehow and whole streets being 3D printed in recyclable thermoplastics. There's sex and violence and lawlessness. And the cops are just a, another racket among many rackets. It's a dystopian satire, but not just satire. Then Art, what was it about Kuva's story that made you want to illustrate it? What drew you to draw it?
0: Well, I got contacted out of the blue right after I'd gotten up here to this log cabin I'm in. Without any real agenda, except I'm working on a... I can't talk much about it, but I'm working on a, uh, a pilot for a TV series, collaborating on it. And that uses one part of my brain. I don't know if it's left, right, top or bottom, but it's not the same as drawing. And my drawing hand was really beginning to atrophy. And so all I really had as a plan was I was bringing a sketchbook to see what was in my head. Uh, This was just the day before New York went into lockdown. I had no idea how long we were coming up for. And eventually I was up here till the weather changed from winter to warm weather. And I had to go back to the city to get something other than flannel shirts and mufflers. But I didn't have that much of an agenda as to what to draw. So this email came in as a godsend saying uh, Robert Coover asked if uh, we could contact you to see if you'd be interested in illustrating a long short story novella he had just done at the end of um, 2019. Would uh, you be up for doing it? And... Well, so two things. One, I've admired Rob Coover's work for a very long time. Discovered it in the 70s with uh, Prick Songs and Descants, his short story collection, and The Public Burning. And I'd always had a place for him in my head as uh this this person is on a frequency I like to be on, and we have at least one or two mutual friends: Paul Oster, Don DeLillo. So I was receptive, even though we had never met. And then I was about to click that story to read it, and I was going, "Please God, don't let it have any mice or Jews in it, because uh, <laughs> that would be a deal breaker." Uh, and. Fortunately, it was more like the things you were saying. And even what you said makes it sound more conventional than it is. Oh, yes, zombies and uh, space stations and whatever makes it sound like whatever I turn on on my television that's not BBC.
1: Yeah, but it's not like that.
0: It's not like that at all. Um, and. So I'm reading this thing and it has a little bit of a, a Philip K. Dick vibe who I've admired for as long as I can remember as well. And we did become friends. So that was made me receptive. And then by the time I finished it, I thought, this is fantastic. By that time, COVID alerts were everywhere. And all I wanted to do is hide behind a tree in our retreat here and wait for all this to go away. We were like being attacked by two major viruses, COVID and Trump. And all I wanted was an escape hatch. And escaping into a dystopia that wasn't the one I was actually in seemed like the perfect place to go. And what I really liked about the story is, and and I like it about Coover's work, in general is he's a very um, learned and serious writer who could easily intimidate one if, he, if that was his goal. instead, he writes in a vernacular he sees things like horror stories, police procedurals, detective stories, westerns as uh, an extension of fairy tales and myth. And therefore, a kind of vernacular uh, literature. And here was this vernacular literature that was dealing with speaking robot uh, voices, like the ones we have when we were setting up for this talk, the Alexis and series of the world. His is named Electra. So there are real parallels into our world, corrupt cops, but. What was really great was it felt real, but the specifics of what I would read, if I was in that world reading its news stories, they'd be somewhat different than ours. And so I felt this was the perfect place to hide. That was part one. Part two was the book that I was being offered was a format that was really enticing to me. It's a book that's smaller than an iPhone.
1: It's about the size of a pack of cigarettes.
0: Yeah, about that, right. And um, I've always loved books as objects. Ultimately, I think, I have to confess, more than reading them, because I have way more of them than I can ever read, but I just like the binding on this one, the typography in that one, the paper on another, the imagery that might surround a book. And this just seemed like a format that was very enticing, because I figured, if I just am trying to warm up my hand, what could be easier than having pictures that can be no larger than... um, three by four inches or something, you know? Sorry, I can't do that in centimeters, but I'm not fluent in other languages. That's
1: really fine.
0: That format was exciting because it seemed like, oh, it'll be easy. But as a, a good friend of mine who runs the only gallery I connect with, Rina Matodi said, Art, you can drown in a teacup. So I took that as my <laughs> mandate <laughs> and decided I'd, I'd get into this teacup and see how full I could make it. And what was kind of a shock to find out was I stayed in that teacup for a year. This tiny little opening to make about a dozen pictures was how I relearned to draw and get my hand to keep from falling off and it had a kind of purity as a project it wasn't ambitious the way say trying to make an amazon prime tv series might be i was using that other part of my brain and it gave me a lot of freedom uh complete freedom when i talked to Coover and met him on the phone said you know there's something you don't like in the story just draw something else uh and that gave me all the license i needed which is how I prefer to work rather than answering to anybody. And of course, being given that freedom made me stick as close to the literal actualities of the story as I possibly could and find a way to wedge myself in. And that just became surprisingly an incredibly large challenge for such a small project.
1: Lots of things to pick up on there. When, the first thing about the format, did you draw at a larger scale and then shrink them down or did you draw to wit on a sketchbook? Yeah.
0: A larger scale for a book, like this is still uh, like half or quarter of an A, what is it, An A five? The typing copy paper. You know, yeah. it's still tiny. And I was working about sixty percent of the actual. In other words, less than half. Again, is about half again as big, let's say. So that still made pictures about, at the most, four and a half inches wide by. I'm sorry to do it in inches. Somebody out there will probably. <laughs> it's really quite fine. small. Quite small images, and that was part of the challenge was like, how much can I fit into something that little? How brimming can it be and still be legible rather than look like a miniature of something else?
1: Did you run ideas by Cooper when you... Because the the, the finished book very much looks like a a collaborative project, that the words and images complement each other. They don't always directly reflect each other. Did he rewrite it? At all, in the light of your drawings or while you were working on it? or
0: Not at all. It was, uh, it was that one license that I just described. Draw whatever you want. I, basically, here's the keys to the card. Take it over a cliff if you like. Whatever works for you. And for me, that was ideal. And the problem I really had to solve before starting was what it means to be an illustrator. Because I know that sometimes in snootier publications, I'm described as an illustrator as if that was something higher than a comics artist. In the, in the hierarchies, it starts with tattoo artists and climbs up to epic scale painter. But illustrator is slightly more respectable than cartoonist for some reason. And I've only done it a few times. Usually if I illustrate, I'm illustrating my own concepts, occasionally for money. Back in my youth, I would draw a refrigerator or something for an advertisement kind of a thing. But for the most part, it's about ideas and drawings being really part of the same process. And here, I had to find a way to do this as an illustrator that I'd only really done extensively in one other book project, something called The Wild Party. Right after I finished Mao's, I did a, an epic, erotic, hard-boiled narrative poem called The Wild Party that got banned in Boston and was about a Prohibition-era wild party with low life in it very uh, catchy rhymes. And I fell in love with the poem. So I wanted to do something after mouse that could be erotic, that could be decorative, that could let part of my brain rest. And to do it, I had to figure out how do I do it without violating uh, something about the text? Because I really respect writing. I sometimes write without drawing and occasionally draw without words, but here I had to find a way to do something which is, on the one hand, you're giving a kind of gift to the author because you're giving them another reason to come into the tent, the reader, and there's something to, like, beckon you, and that's worth something. On the other hand, it's just like a wholesale theft, like you've been beckoned into this house, and then the author just takes all of the uh, characters and tells you exactly what they look like, and all of the hard-won descriptions of places, people, things, and actions have been changed by the way one person, the illustrator, does it. So in The Wild Party, what I did was, I figured, since the the ultimate in any concept is its opposite, something I learned on an early LSD trip, I uh, figured, okay, so I only have to do about eight or ten illustrations, and I ended up doing at least 50 or 60 for this thin book. And I figured if there's so many illustrations, and some of them point to the arbitrariness of this project of illustrating somebody else's Words without being in direct, constant communication. What can I do? So what I would do is there'd be one couplet in the poem where it says, he gave her wrist a twist. Not like one of the more obvious things to illustrate, but I had a man's hand twisting a woman's wrist and an arrow showing whether it was clockwise or counterclockwise. So it was an odd thing to do, but it allowed the book to have a very strange and interesting flip of different size pictures illustrating things of core concern and things very peripheral, showing that even the characters are arbitrary in the way they look. I showed variants of the characters in a a kind of large chart before zooming in on the character. So that was one way of doing it. Here with Coover, it was interesting to me when you said it was one day, I'll say, I'll be damned, I'm going to have to read it again and see if that's true. Maybe it is. But what I was most aware of was how time was so fungible that basically as Bob mentioned when we were first starting, he says, you know, it's a dystopian future, but that means, of course, that it's set in the present, as are all dystopian fictions. Okay, so I already had two time zones, and the the way the book is constructed is there's this hapless schlub, a street cop, not the street cop who came to menace everybody in America more overtly and on the front pages in the George Floyd-related moments that followed, that that was all of a sudden dragging me back through the undertow into the real present, but... This street cop is just sort of like he's actually a petty hoodlum who got put onto the police force because... It was a plea bargain. He could either be on the police force or go to jail.
1: Or, or it's not even that? Was it that he? So uh, he he was a drug dealer and he was being chased and he was got so tired he he runs into the he runs into the police station to turn himself in. And the desk sergeant says, "Are you here for the job?" And he says, "Well, no, I've come to turn myself in." He says, "Well, we need a street cop. Here's your uniform." And out he walks in his uniform and they stop chasing him. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, plea bar- plea bargains don't happen in this world.
0: <laughs> so so it's hardly the the police cops that menaced every. Uh, person in the demonstration in the months that took place while I was still in the midst of this book. But this street cop is much more comfortable in something that's only called the old part of town. People, for the most part, incidentally, aren't given names. So it's the street cop and the old part of town, the city. And the old part of town has a vaguely noir-like vibe to it. And it's no better, in quotes, than the dystopic present, but the street cop is more comfortable in it. He's he's happy with the nostalgia of the gutter, the low life, that uh, the drunks in the old part of town, the architecture. And interestingly enough, in that particular world, where this makes it seem like the dystopia is more focused than it is, and it's not that focused. It's just the it's dystopia land. Like if you go to visit Disney World, there might be. Um, Tomorrowland, Fantasyland, Adventureland. So here's Dystopia Land. And so it has little bits and fragments of various dystopic things. But basically, in this dystopia, buildings get up and walk around. They have the ability to just say, oh, we're moving to another neighborhood and just start moving. So you can't find them twice without a GPS. And our hapless um, street cop doesn't know how to use his GPS. So I was able to identify with the hero immediately. And the nature of this then was to, A, try to figure out what the hell it would look like to have buildings walking around. That was not obvious to me. Um, and B, what would mean to like try to find the old part of town that doesn't show up on the GPS, which becomes critical to the story as, as you move through this uh, narrative. But the street cop has a homing instinct for finding the old part of town. So that gave me two clues as to what I should do. Sorry for such a long answer, but this gives me two clues for how to approach illustrating Coover's work. One was to make sure that it was always taking place in the past, present, and future simultaneously, so that uh, I mixed words with the pictures in little comics-like captions, and one of the captions would refer to something that happened a page or two pages before this spread with a picture on it. And uh, another caption further to the right, since in English we read from left to right, would be a caption from an event or a picture from an event that happens a page or two after this spread. So you're stuck in the spread, but oscillating between the present and the future. And that gave me a way to indicate that this image was... You know how, like, in writing, there's something called a carrot, C-A-R-A-T, when you're correcting somebody's manuscript, and it says Mm -hmm. a large toaster, and you put a carrot in, and it says very large toaster. So the carrot is this new present that's the double page picture. And it's oscillating you between what you've just learned and what you're about to learn and bringing you back to this picture that's collapsing time that way. And the second part of all of what I wanted to do had to do with the fact that I, like Hoover, maybe because of our age, are much more comfortable in the old part of town. And as a result, without saying there's anything better about the old part of town, the same genocide hovered underneath both present and past towns, uh, the racism, the anonymity, all of the issues that haunt us and are maybe even more visible as a result of COVID were as present in our old part of town back in 2000, 1980, 1960, and so on. But it was the old part of town. So I ended up, while fishing around, with a way to draw these characters and somehow not violate the author's autonomy over them, I leaned on a cast of characters that came from my old part of town, which is the early comic strip from about 1900 to about 1963 or so. And so all the characters are, are being cast from the cartoon language that I'd learned to speak as a kid. And I knew I was on the right track when I sent a sketch of the street cop image that ended up being the frontispiece. And had been looking for how to draw this character, trying things that looked more like detective stories and whatever. And I drew basically Sluggo from Nancy and Sluggo. I don't know if this is a comic that's known in England. It's a cult thing here. Like it's uh, it was really popular from nineteen thirties uh, into the. It's I think it's still running. But the original artist was famous for one phrase, which was, dumb it down, make everything so triply clear that to look at it is to understand it. And as a result, that the Gags had a kind of zen-like quality, and the drawing has a very crystalline simplicity to it, but uh, not badly drawn, just really solidly simple. And as a cartoonist I admired, Wally Wood, once said, uh, the thing about Nancy is it was the most red comic strip in the world. It wasn't the most popular. It's just that it was so much harder to not read it than to read it. So this simple character, who's this guy who lives in a shack or he's homeless, a little boy named Sluggo, has a very specific look to him. And as soon as I drew him as an adult in a street cop uniform, I got an excited note back from Bob saying, my God, this is the street cop. You're a genius. So... I I felt that was about all the license I needed to find the rest of my characters.
1: And there is a moment as well when we see him as a child, isn't there, that he remembers he's he's like he's falling down city hall is collapsing or this fake plastic city hall's collapsing and he's falling down the stairs like piano keys. And you draw the steps so they look like a keyboard. And then he remembers sliding down the green grass of the hills when he was a child and we have this sort of flashback. And again what you're saying about those different time having those two, the multiple time schemes simultaneously, which, again, is something that you can do... I mean, you do it in, in all your work. It's in Miles. it's in The shadow of No Towers. Is there that having the the simultaneous time schemes proceeding together?
0: It's one of the things that's most appealing about comics to me is that it juxtaposes moments of time and basically turns them into a spatial construct, a page. And so you're constantly flitting around even before you've decoded a page of comics into the the panel before which is presumably before and the panel after which takes place after and then you can scramble that up and so I tried to take all that and make that part of the illustrating project in this instance and um, I was kind of happy with the results it just was a lot more complicated than it looks you know and I, I think it, there's something about this that looks like it did take the three weeks or month that it was supposed to be scheduled to take instead of the year that are good.
1: And he talks about the space and time being all mixed up somehow. It's one of the ways that has describes the city. So clearly you're the, the perfect.
0: Yeah, there's a lovely line that I used as the back cover of the book. Let me read it rather than misquote it, which is, uh, people got shot and died like they always did, but not always in that order. A great example of this really clear prose that actually makes you really slow down and think about what those words in that order can possibly mean. Uh and finding a way to illustrate that was complicated as
1: well. So it Yeah, sorry, just into so that, that picture you'd where you see where he's um the street cop is is That there's the dead body lying on the on the ground that looks to me like Tintin. I'm glad you're able to get
0: it. Like I assumed that most people will not know any or most of the comics characters in this but they will know that it somehow doesn't seem like it's what one would draw now. It's not today's comics characters. And I definitely thought of that as Tintin, a grown-up Tintin with a liquor bottle in his hand as he's passed out on the sidewalk. And throughout, there are characters, some of which even most comics fans won't recognize, but I think they they each have just built into their own India Ink DNA, they conjure something up. So a dead, grown-up Tintin that's a drunk taking over the role from Captain Haddock, is somebody. And that'll resonate even if you don't know Tintin, which is one of the more knowable characters in this thing. And my, many of them are... I don't know. Were you able to recognise any of the characters besides Tintin, Tom? Or was, was that the, the place where... Uh...
1: Well, has that even, yeah, yeah, Betty, Betty Boop I recognise in, uh, in the bar. <laughs> and there are some who look... I don't know, they look like Robert Crumb... Ah, uh, they look like the characters Robert Crumb was evoking from his old town, actually. Yeah, the, yeah. the little man with a beard is a wonderful comics character. Yeah. And the one I was g- going to ask about, there's the, again, in the bar, that the um, the, the bar is nudie night in the bar, no piss-ugly cop uniforms allowed. The street cop with his his grin on his face and all these, well, and the barman's a skeleton. Um, there's the, sitting at the table, there's the pig with the tattoo, Yes. With the Hebrew tattoo?
0: It says kosher, which is not what pigs usually are, but, I, but you know, it's the old part of town. Uh, there's a bottle of bleach on the table, which is uh, what our president was at that moment telling us to drink. There's the woman who's his old girlfriend, who's inset in the right, is actually the little sweet girl Nancy of Nancy and Sluggo, but turned into uh, a rather sad hulk of a middle-aged Flabby creature and i think my cartoonist friend chris ware when i was showing him some of these drawings while i was working said this this is a nancy i will never be able to unsee
1: and then there's the the little the little mouse that she's talking to the little um so there are there are mice in it after all
0: well one mouse it's and it's one of the mice that was part of the inspiration for mouse it's ignatz from crazy cat uh george harriman's very poetic ultimately uh transcendent comic strip and actually another cartoonist pal wrote like my favorite secret thing in this book is the picture of Ignaz's genitals yeah. not shown in the daily king features comic strip over the 20s through the 40s sort of
1: yeah, echoing his his tail and his ears but there yeah and some of the so other elements like there's the ambulance there's a, like a hovercraft ambulance with a giant hypodermic needle sticking out the front of it which has a swastika on the door is to instead of a, a red cross, it has a swastika.
0: Yeah. It's um look, I had to, I, in order to do this thing fully, I had to just open up my subconscious and see what would like be allowed through. And it's on the one hand, it was like, I had to draw an ambulance. I wanted something that had an emergency happening at the, in the middle of the night. But um, in mouse, I was painfully aware of the role the red cross played in both somehow ameliorating the pain and also abetting it. The Red Cross would come and visit Theresienstadt and gave it a, a clean bill of health as a, a beautiful, healthy town for the Jews, as opposed to a holding pen for Auschwitz. A train stuffed full of people being sent to their deaths would be stopped in the middle of nowhere so everybody could get out and be given a donut and then stuffed back into the train. To... So, So my feelings about the Red Cross have always been a bit ambivalent. I prefer giving to doctors without borders than to the Red Cross. And so something that looked, it was just a a good logo, a good invention to have a red cross with a little protruding uh, leg going up perpendicular or down perpendicular to make it into something else at the same time. So, yeah, the pictures are kind of overstuffed, but try not to look overstuffed, but to conjure up probably my favorite part of the old town, which is the world of very early mad comics, where... There was something that they called either chicken fat or eyeball kicks, which was reasons to come back and reread as well as read whatever parody is being offered to you in Mad when I was a tyke. So even the future stuff, since I'm looking at that scene to to relook at that uh, hypodermic needle on wheels or no wheels, but hovering through the city, is the rocket ship in the upper in the sky and the gun in the street cop's hands are futuristic, but futuristic means 1930s Buck Rogers. So, like I said, it's all inhabited through my old town, and I think it's part of uh what it means to find a place to breathe in a soulless and personless place. Like, because of my age, I'm really shocked when I find out, like, oh, this is such a great series, it's so 80s. And I go, what? That's impossible. <laughs> uh 80s is about three weeks ago, and there's nothing to look back on with great um, uh, joy that I can remember. Well, there is, but, you know, like the media is not something I was staring at wistfully.
1: Although something, when I remember the 80s, one of the things which, when I was born in the late 70s, so so for me, the, the 80s are garbage pale kids. Mm.
0: <laughs> yes, I was making somebody else's old part of town somehow.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, indeed, you really were, so that's the... Um... Were you thinking of the the city and the old part of town, but, and also the the above ground dystopia of all dystopias? Was it, is it a version of New York, or is it wider than that, more generic than that?
0: The the not old part of town, you mean? The old part of town is New York. Somehow. Uh, yeah. The rest of it is every media vision that I was able to retain from Blade Runner on back to the old pulp magazines all mixing together. But, I, you know, I, I really had a lot of trouble drawing that part of the story. Like I couldn't env- envision what Coover uh, was talking about. So it's somehow a thermoplastic projection of a city that can melt and change and move its position and fall apart and reconvene. And that was like very hard for me to picture. I just had it as a collection of thoughts, of, uh, but they didn't conjure up a specific visual. Fortunately for me, I'd more or less finished my book illustration without drawing much of that. It's just like, okay, since I can draw whatever I want. I'll just walk around the spinach and not eat it and move on to the, the rest of the <laughs> meal. Um, but then a kind of magic thing happened. I'd already got an agreement from Bob and from Isolari. Sure, that's fine. Whatever you like. You've done about 11, 10 pictures or whatever it was. Uh, and then uh, January 6th happened, the invasion of the capital. And the world stopped. So even work on other corners of my life, like the uh, pilot sc- uh, screenplay and a couple of other illustrations that I was making for uh, to think through a project, another project, uh, everything ground to a halt. And we all reported to our television sets to figure out what the hell was just buckling and changing now in our reality. And it was at that point that everything I tried to avoid but couldn't. COVID, Trump, politics, fascism, all of this stuff came flooding to the foreground, and somehow it unlocked that sequence of the story that has the Capitol building uh, instead of City Hall, and it's melting somehow and uh, shifting as a 3D image and all those things I couldn't draw. I was able to dive into my computer and go back to the early experiments when I first taught myself Photoshop in the early 1980s, thinking of it as a kind of Donkey Kong where you would draw until it crashed. And uh, it didn't even have a history state. So You could just make one mistake and the drawing was over. But as a result of that, I was trying all these things out that involved distortions and superimpositions and just messing around. And all of that vocabulary became incredibly useful for a new suite of pictures that opened up right at that moment that included the one that you were describing of uh, nostalgically remembering rolling down the hills of the past while on a giant city hall steps Capital steps that looked like a piano keyboard, that was the cop was painfully rolling down. All of those images came in a flood while listening to the daily shock of um, <laughs> the end of civilization, if that's what we want to call it, in big quotes, civilization as we knew it, which just seemed like the ultimate culmination of um, the four or so years of Trump which was a bigger threat as a virus the way I experienced it than than the COVID itself, which could be handled by masks and social distancing and being very afraid. Uh, So from the very beginning, while trying to avoid all this stuff, the very cover image has COVID viruses on it at the very moment that they were being codified. Like every time I'd open a paper, there'd be a different version of a COVID, different colors, different degrees of little spokes coming out of it with different shapes, different textures. So I got really interested in how to draw COVID because uh, nobody said arrived at a consensus then. But as a result, I just ended up drawing one as filling up a compositional hole or two on my uh, first sketch. So it kept leaking. And like I say, the street cop himself began to have a very different resonant meaning and to become actually almost in retrospect, because he had written this in 2019, at the end of 2019, a defiant aspect to it that wasn't part of the uh, conscious story going, oh, yeah, well, street cops are just schlubs, too.
1: Although there is that scene, isn't it? Because it's, I mean, he's, as we talked about already, he's kind of, he became a cop by mistake. He became a cop, He's, he's in disguise as a cop in order to avoid jail. And it, you know, he says he has a soft spot for fucked up losers. And at one point, I mean, I don't think it's really giving anything away because it's not the kind of story that you can give spoilers to, but he turns against the Robocops and he starts smashing up the robot cops with his with his nightstick on behalf of the fucked up losers. So the, he's in his slightly hopeless ineffectual way, he is a he's a rebel.
0: Yes. I mean he doesn't the actual title page spread has like these futuristic uh, robot cops who go as far into the future as I can go, which is 1963 and the early Jack Kirby (laughs) Marvel comics versions of such things. Uh, And it's a row of these identical um, uh, robot cops. And there's a head shorter is our schlub uh, equally stern and aiming into whatever crowd they're about to like uh, do damage to. And on the other hand, it seemed so interesting because What makes all of these things that we've been living through in the past year or so so interesting is they reveal all of the fault lines of our civilization in ways that make them inescapable. Like we all sort of knew that the rich were getting way, way richer and everybody else was having a harder and harder time. We knew that uh, colonialism has had disastrous effects. We knew all of these things, but it was unavoidable. It was so in your face culminating in that Yahoo's take over the capital and take off the velvet gloves of... um, of our government to reveal its naked, nakedness, basically. And the fact that government itself was doing this, was dismantling itself, was a surge of things that make everything in here look like um, um, sweet little nursery rhyme stories, you know? And yet they cast so much light on the actuality. With a, Because Cooper didn't have an agenda. This was not like certain kinds of dystopic novels that prove that it's terrible what people are doing to the planet Earth. And then everything about the novel exists to show you that we all should live on soybeans or something. Uh, and this has nothing as didactic as that. It's just that civilization didn't work, folks,
1: is what this is showing off. And those those kinds of didactic stories tend to age very quickly. Whereas something like, well, something like this, which is more seems to be more prescient because it doesn't have that that sort of particular exactly target
0: and the other thing i really loved in this book was the fact that it slides between genres this is not a everything we're saying makes people i would think expect okay this is kind of maybe a little better written but it's like one of the sci-fi stories you might be reading or seeing on tv and it's not because it slides so happily between uh one genre and another it's as if you were uh, reading Sleeping Beauty and all of a sudden you're in the middle of Oedipus Rex and then after that you're uh, in, I don't know, uh, a Bugs Bunny cartoon. But the the um, the way it works is it moves you into this thing called the Pet Shop of the Living Dead uh, where zombie pets have become popular. <laughs> or not popular, but they're selling them anyway.
1: But nobody wants them. They're, 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 yeah, exactly. They're kind of things that... yeah, yeah.
0: It's pets that only eat human meat. Uh, and the... Again, I don't think it's giving away much of the story to indicate that that sort of is sliding you into a much more gothic kind of flavor than the police procedural that is being riffed on earlier or the dystopic science fiction that floats throughout it. And then without wanting to say exactly how, the whole thing ends with the most unlikely love story one could ever imagine. And for me, that's where I was totally won over. Like, this is such a, a beautiful collapsing of all kinds of popular culture
1: into one very solid nugget so if in, in this book these drawings are in part of response to the end of four years of trump you're in the shadow of no towers which sort of in many ways is the opposite of this in terms of format this very large format pictures and but also as a, as a response to the to the bush era and to living under bush but they also don't I mean, it it appeared initially in newspapers and designed in the forward and in, in the LRV in two thousand and three. And each episode took up the central double page spread of the LRB, turned through ninety degrees, so again, this kind of playing with format so it's portrait rather than landscape, it's taller than it is wide, so the the towers could appear, the shadows of the towers could appear within them. But also in that you were doing what we we're talking about, those multiple time schemes at once and that only the comic book form can do. It seems to me there's no other there's no other form that could could tell those stories.
0: I think in the in the essay that accompanied the book format version of uh, No Towers, it was only able to come out about four years after it was drawn because the climate right after September 11th was the street cop police state. Don't say anything; you'll be seen as unpatriotic. We're going to war to like right this grievous wrong that had been done to us, um, etc. Well. I populated that exactly the way I populated this. I wasn't aware of it while I was doing it, but here again I was like using the old Sunday comic supplements, these really large-sized Sunday comics pages in America at the turn of the last century, using the conceit that the newspaper comics were invented two or three blocks away from the World Trade Center on Park Row. And so that's where the Hurst and Pulitzer Sunday comic sections were born. They got disinterred and populated my brain and the world around me as I tried to come to terms with what was happening in my neighborhood. And in the introduction to the book, I ended up saying something like, disaster is my muse, because I was finding a new place to make comics after having drawn mouths. And uh Then I was wondering why I couldn't deal well with the Trump age and ultimately with the virus directly when it came along. I tried, but eventually I had to answer anybody who asked me why I wasn't dealing more overtly with it. I said, well, disaster is my muse, but not catastrophe. (laughs) Whatever that might mean. Um, and I couldn't get my brain around it while it was happening. And that was true for September 11th as well. I went into a September 12th that lasted until a little bit after Christmas of that year and then began working on something that was like two years to make 12 pages or something and a very complex, large pages, but trying to sort out what I had understood of what was going on around me in fragments, because that's the way my brain was working. And I found that what was happening here was so all pervasively toxic, that there was no stepping back from it. And everybody else was experiencing it too. Like when I was experiencing September 11th, there was a small coterie of people who were experiencing it the way I was, which had to do with living downtown right in Ground Zero. That became very different after. Like two weeks later, I was taking one of the first airplane trips that was even happening uh, out to the Midwest to give a talk about comics that had been scheduled long before. And in the car ride from the airport to uh, the university... The big thing there had to do with uh, the frat houses and whether they were going to be zoned differently. And then he said, "Yeah, I was looking at that uh, kind of World Tower, st- Trade Tower stuff happening on TV. And do you think that was real? Looked like special effects to me, you know. And it was—I a- just had wandered into a reality that I didn't understand. And that was part of the dissonance of that moment. Here, everybody had the same feeling of both unreality." and intensively having it in your face that was part of having to deal with protecting your face with a mask, ducking from these large knobby COVID viruses that seem to be the size of basketballs or bigger, Uh, having to deal with the dislocations of of language even. What the hell's an essential worker except somebody who's disposable? Language just changed. So everything was in flux, and I couldn't get at it directly. And prior to that, I couldn't deal with Trump directly because he was just such an easy target. Ha, ha, yes, large body and small hands. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Look at that comb over. Um, what a lout. What a jerk. All too easy. And ultimately, whatever one drew, including him as uh, with swastikas, as armbands or whatever, whatever one did, one was just feeding a narcissistic beast. So uh, narcissists don't care if you hate him or love them, as long as you're at the center of their brain.
1: Uh the yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, well... As a result, I I found it to be a sucker's game. I drew Trump a few times. I replaced him with a metonym, a visual metonym, which was just to draw a turd, a talking turd, uh, and had, of course, tiny hands. But it lasted a very brief time. It was when my wife and daughter had decided to do a magazine called Resist that would be given away free at the Women's March for the inauguration. I asked if men were allowed in to the march. And my daughter showed me that men who knew how to follow orders from women would indeed be allowed in. And I had a lot of practice having a daughter and a wife doing just that. So I was part of it. And then they opened up a little boys club section inside Resist, which was mostly women's drawings about Trump ranging from very accomplished ones to people who had never drawn before. And so I did a few things there and a couple of things for the New York Times, but found, like I say, it was a sucker's game. Dealing with Trump directly had At best, it was just sort of entertaining the troops the way the USO would do in World War II, like Bob Hope would come out and tell a few jokes so he could go out and become cannon fodder the morning after again uh, and be cheered up. But it didn't feel like it could actually affect much change because it it just felt too ineffectual. So that's why Street Cop became my tiny little postage size platform to work with.
1: Related to that, the difficulty of of how to approach Trump and obviously with with Miles, the question of how how do you approach the Holocaust, and it, in the last in the final instalment of or the final chapter episode of in the Sh- of No Towers, it begins nothing like commemorating an event to help you forget it. I mean, presumably that is an anxiety which in, informs your own work and the way about nine eleven and about and with Mao's and the Holocaust, or how do you write about Trump, the danger, if that's not too strong a word, of how to represent something without somehow make, you know making it go go away or what you're talking about with with the difficulty with Trump earlier.
0: it's the nature of how memory works and comics really deal with memory by definition as i said past present and future boxes piled up near each other but very specifically as soon as you remember something you remember the memory it's what photographs do right like you look back at your childhood photos and say i really remember that and i remember that slide that swing set, that whatever, because by God, you've got something tangible to help you locate it. And you probably don't remember the little birdhouse that was uh, catty-cornered from where the photo was because it wasn't in the picture. So you get something concrete that replaces the reality. And it's the only choice we have because we're kind of picture and language machines. And those things confine and constrain thought as well as actually being what thought is made of. So one has to just oscillate and work with it. I thought of uh, Mao's as done because I needed to understand something. It wasn't done uh, either to teach anybody anything or anything like that, but just to try to understand what the hell these inchoate forces uh, I was growing up with were and and try to put them in as linear an order as I could to see if I could just know what happened a little bit better. So that, of course, meant, on the one hand, making what became a 13-year-long memory candle, a yardside candle, which is what you light to remember the dead in your family in Jewish religion. And although totally secular, this became my 13-year-long yardside candle to understand what had consumed my parents and then kind of affected me as well as a comfortable American kid reading his comic books and mad.
1: Slightly nervous asking questions about it, partly because there's that very brilliant scene in the second part with journalists asking idiotic questions about part one so the the dual timeline in mouse having a character that's that's you or it's or a version of you interviewing your father at what point in the process did you decide to have that the, the the story of you hearing the story from your father running parallel to the story he was telling
0: The first version of Mouse was a three-page story for something called Funny Aminal Comics, an underground comic that uh, had been started uh, as a one-shot to supposedly about animal rights, but nothing in the book seemed to deal with animal rights because the way underground comics were edited is, we're doing something about anthropomorphic animals. How many pages do you want? And so I just took a bid to do a three-page thing. I was excited about doing it because Robert Crumb was doing the lead story and the cover and He was definitely the most accomplished and uh, uh, biggest pioneer of what this kind of comics making could be. His story was about two little uh, foxes who lure, anthropomorphic foxes, who lure a giant chicken woman into uh, their bedroom and approach her with lust. But they end up just eating her because they're foxes and she's a chicken. So. That was that story. I had no idea what I was going to do. It took a while to find what it would be. But it became a bedtime story being told by a papa mouse to a smaller mouse, a baby mouse, in bed, hearing stories about the old country. There was a three-page vignette about being in hiding during World War II. And... That was after rejecting several other ideas that would be kind of a parody of the old horror comics uh, done with anthropomorphic animals rather than with human zombies and stuff. And after I finished it, I realized that, boy, there's a lot more here. I did it back in 72, when there really wasn't that much literature and popular culture about uh, the death camps and genocide of World War II. And... I had to return to it when I returned to New York and had to have some kind of relationship with my father because I was no longer in the San Francisco wonderland of uh, underground comics that felt to me like Paris in the 20s or something, this new uh, renaissance of a new approach to making things. And when I came back, I ended up just talking to my father and we ended up talking about the death camps over and over again. And I was about to turn 30 and I realized I'd been wearing a lapel button since my hippie days that said, don't trust anyone over 30. Here I was at the precipice. I assumed I would be dying of a motorcycle accident, just to follow through with the script I'd given myself. And instead, uh, I hadn't even learned how to ride a motorcycle by then. So I had to take on something that would keep me busy after my 30th birthday. And that became the 13 year long mouse project of just trying to understand what had happened.
1: The Wall Street Journal described mouse as the most affecting and successful narrative ever done about the Holocaust. And I mean, it's hard to argue with, with that assessment.
0: You know, one thing that is true. Like to go back, I don't remember how you phrased it, Tom, but there's something that you were saying at the beginning about like memory. Was I afraid about memory being blunted by having given it shape, or
1: yeah? Well, the well, the, well, the last episode of of No Towers, which the LRB published on September 11th, 2003, and it's nothing like commemorating an event to help you forget it. So actually, I was of coming onto that about the the Wall Street Journal and that because then it won the pulitzer prize and it did a a huge amount to make serious people in quotes like wall street journal reviewers take comic books seriously as a form and to bring comics out of the underground but also there's something about it it seems to me that ought to be it's a disreputable form somehow and it's not there's a way in which is that it's it's sad to to bring comics out of that underworld
0: you know Everything one does has to be adjusted afterwards to find one's way. If we're ever going to get to find some kind of utopia, we're going to have 20 new dystopias we never even thought about before, before we could even move towards such a thing. And um, similarly, at that time, it seemed interesting and important to me for both noble and stupid reasons to want to have a different audience for comics than the one I was able to find. Uh, Because very early on, I knew that I wanted to make comics Uh, I knew I didn't want to do superhero comics. Being offered a newspaper comic strip while I was still in high school that would be syndicated made me realize after doing two weeks of samples that an editor was grooming for syndication. I realized this would be a fate worse than death. I don't want to do that kind of comics. Do the same thing every day until you just drink yourself into a stupor and shoot yourself or something, because how can you keep doing that. Uh, Then just knowing that I was interested in working with words and pictures. And before there was such a thing as underground comics, doing things that were kind of surreal and poetic and whatever, and didn't even fit exactly in what underground comics became, but uh, were closer to that than anything else by trying to find a place where comics could be. And so I got really interested in like finding that audience. The less savory side of that is probably lower middle class upward striving of like, well, gee, you know, why can't I be in a museum too, you know? But nevertheless, there was that urge like, wow, the people were are talking about books in this um, the New York review of books and in the uh, New York, Times and in the LRB, they seem to be willing to like dive into somebody's uh, brain work and uh, live inside that. In a way, the comics very rarely get that kind of attention, except for me, because I lived deeply in those old comics. And when they did, it would usually just be a sociology. Like, what does Buck Rogers tell us about the, the anxieties that technology brings with it or something, and not the work of a person? So a lot of what became first Arcade Magazine, a gathering of underground comic artists in San Francisco, and later with Francois's Raw Magazine, was an attempt to find other cartoonists who were inchoately looking for something similar. How can I just work on my own terms? And so the artists in Raw, for the most part, didn't have that much of a common denominator. An artist like Yo Swart could revive uh, the clear line of Ten Ten and do something much quirkier and uh, dealing with his own peculiar inventiveness graphically and in terms of the ideas that weren't just boys' adventure stories to find a place for himself. And the same issue that something that looked like Tintin existed, Gary Panther's punk era ratty line drawings uh, about um, the genocide of the Indians done with Jimbo as a California schlub uh, imagining himself as an Indian or uh, about nuclear waste or about just punks making throwing shit at each other, could coexist happily because there was a common denominator. And that common denominator had to do with, so what can comics be when they're not what people think comics are? And I'm amazed at how effective our reveal was of gathering together what was like a Potemkin village, you know, like these artists didn't necessarily know each other, but we put them together and see, see, there's this tight community of artistes living in the uh, Greenwich Village comics land <laughs> or something. And uh, it allowed people to take comics measure by giving a large size book that didn't look as uh, toilet reading like as the Zap comics did and it was at the right time with the right people doing something that opened up what now is something that you're right, needs a corrective. It needs more people willing to take insane risks and not fall into, I know I'll do a memoir or I'll do a historical work or I'll do a slice of life about trying to find my gender identity or whatever these, these tropes are that create a much more, in quotes now, respectable because there's great work going on in comics right now, a lot more than I ever dreamed could be. But nevertheless, it has a kind of respectability that I think led ultimately to doing Street Cop. I think Street Cop in many ways was a return to my underground comics roots, including the semi-pornographic nudie bar scene we looked at, but also the whole approach to it is it's it's not ambitious. I mean, it is. It took me a fucking year to do, but, um, but it doesn't project ambition. It's not like taking on a 600-page graphic novel about, whatever. It's an expression of self, let's say. And it was one that I allowed myself to wander in, like moving gingerly through, oh, I wonder if this picture will get me canceled. Maybe not. I'll run it by my daughter and find out, you know. But it really was much more for itself. Reminds me, I'm going to give you a tangent. A good friend of mine called up Chortling about an article about the recent Philip Roth biography by somebody he knew that had been written for Book Forum, the Art Forum Book Supplement. And talking about Philip Roth, this writer talks about how Roth was the great exemplar of the dominant style of our era. You know, because like at one point there was romanticism and expressionism and surrealism. And he talks about Roth as the primary exemplar of careerism, which is exactly what our art is now. It's inflated. It's about finding a brand and living inside that brand. And if you're going to draw teacups, you can make you can draw teacups, sculpt them, make them enormous uh crack them, um, have a happening where everybody's drinking from teacups and urinating on the gallery floor. But you have your thing. And anytime anybody thinks about a teacup, it's your brand and everybody else better stay away. So all of which is to say that somehow part of all of the striving that I had in trying to find some form that I didn't understand, which now is called a graphic novel, but I didn't think of it as that. I just thought of it as a very long comic book would need a bookmark and hopefully be reread as well as read, because that's where things begin to live, is now a given. And what can one do with that that hasn't been done, that isn't about only trying to stake a flag in the ground that's urgent for you? And that's very rare in any medium that you find works that have the urgency of being made. And that's where things come, art comes from. And finding that thing that might involve going back and scooping up some of that forbidden outlaw energy of underground comics is a likely place to look for such chinks in the careerist armor. And to take one more tangent off my tangent, the last time I was in New York City for a week, I saw this amazing exhibit, uh, which was called Photo Brute, B-R-U-T, at the Folk Art Museum in Manhattan. And it's Mostly from one Belgian collector who began collecting in the 70s, saying, that's really interesting. We have art Brute from WFA on, identified as uh, artists who haven't been schooled to be artists, of uh, madmen, uh, primitives, um, obsessives.
1: Uh, outsider artists. Hmm? O- Outside outsider art. art, yes,
0: one of the phrases for it. And uh, that was perfectly reasonable to discover in the 20s and 30s with whatever, from Henri Rousseau on around. But then with everybody striving to become an outsider artist, including the insiders like uh, Picasso. But then ultimately, the camera became one more tool in that, because in the beginnings of the last century, the camera was um, an expensive and strange apparatus by Later in the century, you had photo booths and Kodaks and ultimately Polaroids and all kinds of ways that people could make photographs. And we were like flooded with photographs in magazines and elsewhere. And so a generation of other outsiders had started coming into existence who were doing the most insane and amazing things with photography. So this exhibit had about, I don't know, I'm guessing about 30, 40 artists with about six to eight examples maybe of each all working in one way or another with photographs and doing amazing things. Like there's a slideshow, this man making self-portraits of himself, looks like a street person, but he looks like Mahatma Gandhi in one, as like a a movie actress in another. I don't think he'd ever heard of Cindy Sherman or vice versa, but there he was doing that. There were other things that were collages, there were things taking pornographic photos and writing weather reports on top of them uh, with strange arcane symbols. There was sculptures that were being made to look like store dummies that had a strong erotic content that were then photographed by this person who somehow was doing that outside of any gallery system. The closest we came to a gallery system was uh, one woman who was making weird paintings, but also photographs and collages that she would sell on the sidewalk in front of the Art Institute in Chicago, which is as close as she ever got to the art world, which was the uh, <laughs> the street traffic that went by the Art Institute. Uh, all of this is to say that it was a, a show that opened things up for me in a way that even Art Brute couldn't, because Art Brute had already become historicized and commodified, as will Photo Brute, but ultimately was indications of what people do as pe- uh There's this thing, it's like art, but it's before you call it art and put it in a gallery and start turning it into a A, non-fungible, whatever.
1: NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Yes,
0: uh, tokens. uh, Before we enter any world of the marketplace, there's this thing that people do. They get obsessed. They have to understand something that happened to them or something that they see around them that they don't understand. And they begin making things the way a, a spider makes a web. And that's a very different approach to making uh, what we could call art. And it's so uh, liberating to see so many examples of it in this one exhibit
1: I stumbled into. And I I find it inspiring. Art Spiegelman, thank you very much. To order Street Cop by Robert Coover and Art Spiegelman, visit the publisher's website at isolari.com. That's I-S-O-L-A-R-I-I.com. Or if you're in London... Go to the London Review Bookshop in Berry Place.